Hello and welcome to Turning Point Sermons. My name is Cameron Howell and I am sure glad that you're here today. We have a special sermon for you today by Pastor Dean Miller entitled, Renewing Your Passions. We're going to be finding 1 Peter, so find 1 Peter and 2 Peter tonight. I'm going to preach through the entire books of both of those, word by word, <laughs> before the brisket. But I, I am, a, I am a, a little bit of accustomed to preaching under uh, uh, duress like that. When you have these kind of things in, in everybody else's mind, we, we just heard a great thought, and then we're thinking about brisket in a minute. And many of you have been up before daylight today and you got to go to work tomorrow or whatever you've got. So we're going to just get to the Word of God. I was preaching on Easter Sunday this year in our church and the Lord moved our family to Colorado three years ago. And um, it was a huge, huge move for us. And uh, we came to this church and, and uh, we got there and we're just getting our feet on the ground and then COVID comes and all of a sudden I'm on a camera talking to people who don't know who I am and I don't know who they are and I'm thinking are we going to have a church after this well it wasn't my church anyway so it was the Lord's church and uh, the church has, has just thrived through all of this and God has been so good but I was preaching Easter Sunday this year and uh you know, Easter Sundays are big Sundays, right? I mean, every Sunday is a big Sunday, but there's just an expectancy that people have uh, for Easter. And so it's Easter Sunday and the place is packed out. And so we had a baptism service on Easter Sunday and we were going to baptize, I think 15 or 20 folks were getting baptized that day. And so we did baptism before the preaching. I mean, we started the service off with baptism. It was actually, it was so much fun, man, hearing everybody's testimony. There was a 16-year-old boy getting baptized that day. He came to church. He'd, he'd been coming with his grandmother on his mom's side, or on his dad's side of the family. And he, um, he got saved, and he wanted to get baptized. And so I went and met with his mom and dad, and all of their family went to another church. And I said, listen, your, your son's been coming, and he's been saved, and he wants to get baptized. And so we'll, we'll baptize him on another day besides Easter if you guys all want to go to church as a family. And they said, oh, no, 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 we're all coming. We can't wait to come to Front Range on Easter. And this is going to be exciting. And Justin loves you and he loves the church. And man, he wants to get baptized and we're all coming. So their whole family came. They all sat right over here on the right-hand side of the church, on my right-hand side, right over here in the second row, the whole family, everybody. And so I baptized Justin and it was great. We went out, we got, we, we changed and we had all of our song service and all the things that we were doing for Easter. And I kind of stood in the back and just watched the service and just cried. And it was just a wonderful day. Then I got up to preach. And I got up there and I announced my text. And I said, you know, we're going to be preaching from Acts chapter 10 today. And I began to explain where we were in the text. Peter was at Caesarea. And he's about to preach to Cornelius. And I'm talking about that. And I looked over and I saw this young man's grandfather who this was his first time in church, and I thought, I think that man is dead. And so I read my text, and I'm, I'm looking over, and sure enough, I'm thinking, he, that man, he's deceased. So I said, now here's where we are in the story, and I walked over here, and, and I wanted to get over here so I could have a long walk that way. So I could really take in the situation. I, you know, Peter comes to Cornelius' house, and he's talking to Cornelius. And I'm staring at this man, and listen, he's in heaven. 
And as I'm looking at him, his wife looks over and she, she shook him. And then I saw her son-in-law run out. And then once I knew that the wheels were in motion, we have a doctor on call and we had all of our, we had all of our nurses and EMTs and people came down and they're, and so I'm preaching and I'm looking over here and, uh, and nobody even knows it's going on. And, and so I see, I see the doctor slide in there and Dr. Gamut gets over there and I see him talking and I see her doing this. And later I learned that the conversation was when he came, said, hey, we don't have a pulse. He's not breathing. I got to start compressions. And she said, no, no, no. He's had all kinds of heart surgeries. He has a DNR. We can't do that. And then Dr. Gamma's like, well, I got to get him. I got to get him moved. We got to get EMTs rolling and EMS rolling. And so when I saw him hit the button and, and some of the ushers coming to help, I just said, folks, we have a medical emergency. Let's bow for prayer. And, uh, and then I was the only guy in the room with my eyes closed. Um, <laughs> You know, as soon as you said the Baptist, everybody's going, where? What's going on? Let's all pray for this family. What family? Where? Who is it? And uh, people have their phones up. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. So I see them go. I'm praying, and, and they go, and, and I finish the message. And, man, God just blessed. We had a chief master sergeant in the Air Force. He and his wife came to got saved that day, and a number of other people came and trusted Christ. And so after the service, I was going out the side door where I always go. I go outside, and I shake hands. And when I come down the steps, there's this sheet. And um, my, it's not funny. <laughs> my, 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 one of my deacons says, uh, Pastor, this is uh, Mr. So-and-so. He went to be with the Lord today, and this is his wife. And I stop and pray with him. And then uh, more of their family came later that day, and we had to wait for the coroners and the medical examiner and all of that. And then, but I was able to give the gospel to some of their, their older adult children. And, and, and his wife said, you know, he was in the service singing with that last song that the ensemble sang before you preached. It was his favorite song. And he was singing with them. So somewhere between the time that they got finished singing and I got up to read the pet text, he went to be with the Lord. And, uh, man, what a day. <laughs> and so let's not do that tonight. <laughs> and we'll see if we can get through the message and get to the brisket in a moment, okay? So uh, everybody, and if I say bow your head and close your eyes, you bow your heads <laughs> and close your eyes. First Peter chapter 4. Thank you, Brother Shemesh, for that wonderful message. Brother Fisher, it's so good to see you, and God bless you, and thank you for your ministry. And um, I was challenged by that tonight. I was humbled, and God did a work in my heart through that. I'm, um, I'm still young, even though I've got gray hair. I'm only 49. I'm still in my 40s, but I am a grandpa now, and there's one thing that's been on my heart the last few years. My, my daughters are getting married, and I've got one left at home, and uh, a verse that comes to my mind so often is, what is your life? It is but a vapor. We, we take so much for granted, don't we? And uh, every day, every day, God has given you is a gift of God, and it is to be used for his glory, and uh, we must not waste it. And exactly what Brother Shemus said tonight is so true, that we live in a world of injustice and hurt and pain and suffering. 
And it's interesting to know this, that every one of us in this room, even these young people in the front, every one of us know this. We instinctively know that there is something fundamentally wrong with the world. We know it's not supposed to be like this. Uh, Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. In fact, people aren't supposed to bury people at all. There's no such thing as a natural death. Death is so unnatural, we don't even know how to cope with it. Death is unnatural. We weren't made to die. And we, we all know in this room that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. The world's not supposed to be like it is. And yet, how do we, how do we know that? We've never seen the world any other way. We, we know that there's something fundamentally wrong in us. The things that we want to do, we don't. The things that we don't want to do, we do. And we know it shouldn't be like this. I mean, the other night, it was Saturday night. I get nervous before preaching, and man, Saturday nights, I'm always amped up, and I'm, I lay in bed, and I just, I don't know if any of the other pastors, I preach my message 14 times, I pray through it, I preach it to the Lord, listen to this, and see if this, is this what you want me to preach, is this good, and I preach it, you know, I, man, I, I uh, and, and Saturday night, I'd been laboring, and thinking, and praying, and I, you know, I've been studying for weeks, and I'm thinking, man, is this really, is this, did I, is this, does this passage really, and I'm thinking all that, and my wife, she's, she's out, and I thought, man, I'm hungry, so I got out of bed, and I went downstairs, and I, you ever done this, I opened up the fridge, and nothing looked good, oh, I looked at the cheese, no, I don't want cheese, And then I opened the door, and listen, the only reason I didn't choose Captain Crunch is because it was Saturday night, and I didn't want my mouth raw on Sunday morning. (laughs) So I left that aside, and let me tell you what I got. I went to the cabinet, and I'm opening up, there's crackers, there's some other, and I chose a, my wife had bought this pound bag of Jelly Bellies at Costco, and I got that, and I went up to the bed, and I'm looking over my notes, and I'm laying in bed, and, I've got the, and I'm trying not to wake my wife up, sneaking my hand in. And here's the problem with jelly bellies. You pull a handful out, but you don't eat jelly bellies by the handful. Because if you get like a cinnamon and a black licorice together, that's horrible. So I got handfuls of, of and I, you have to eat them one at a time. So I'm eating that one at a time, and I can't turn the light on. If the light was on, I know how to make, like, apple pie, and I know how to make other things. You can combine stuff, like a pineapple with coconut. It's a pina colada. I mean, I know how to do all that, but I couldn't turn the light on. So I'm just eating, and I, and I keep thinking, okay, this is the last handful. And I ate three-quarters of a pound of Jelly Bellies on Saturday night. And I woke up on Sunday morning, and my first thought was, uh, why did I do that? And here's the problem. The bag is sitting by the bed. And my wife is like, why are these up here? <laughs> they were lonely in the, in the cabinet. Why do, we do what we, why do we do what we know we shouldn't do? I mean, on the counter, there were, there were apples and bananas. Did I choose it? No. We all know there's something wrong with this world. 
And it is wrong because sin entered into the world. And death by sin. And injustice and pain and the difficulties of life, cancer. But I want to read a text for you tonight because Peter has been writing to people who are suffering. Peter, Peter wrote in, in, in 1 Peter 1, he said, Peter, an apostle, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. Here's, here's all these believers in all of these places of modern-day Turkey. They're scattered everywhere. And he's writing to them. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy <laughs> hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of the dead, of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Remember that, Amen. the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love. In whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. He's writing to people who are suffering. He's writing to people who are going through great trials. He said later in the book, he said, Love it, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. I mean, we're going to go through fiery trials. We're going to go through difficult things. But Peter had something always on his mind. And listen to me. I believe that in this conference, if we're going to renew our passions for the Lord Jesus Christ and renew our passion for preaching the word of God and seeing people saved and being in ministry, if we're going to, if we're going to be Christians who are passionate about what we believe and are passionate about whom we have believed, if we are going to be Christians who make a difference and shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. There's something that we better keep in the forefront of our mind. And that's this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse number 7, Peter said, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. And every man, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let me show you how Peter wrote it in the second epistle very quickly. And we'll come back to this. And I'm going to just give you a few thoughts and we'll be done. But Peter had this constantly in his mind and in his heart. And I believe, I believe it's, the, it's the difference in people who, in the midst of trials and tribulations, in the furnaces of suffering and, and uh, injustice and sickness and illness and, and, and all the things that we cannot understand, it's those who keep their mind focused on this. 
I believe it's the secret of those who have stayed on fire for Christ. They've had their mind fixed. Watch this. Look at, look at 2 Peter very quickly. Uh, I'll give you a very quick breakdown, but in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter is talking about, in the book of 2 Peter, he's talking about authentic Christianity, what it means to be authentic in an age of, of, of counterfeits and those that are fake and those that are, those that are teaching and believing false doctrine. Peter says, first of all, he said, you have become partakers of the divine nature. If you are an authentic Christian, you've been born again. And you have the life of God in you. You have the divine nature. You are now the sons of God. And he said, now I want you that have had that divine nature. You've partaken of that divine nature. You've been born again. Now you add to that faith virtue and knowledge and temperance and godliness and brotherly kindness. You begin to grow in the graces of what it means to be conformed into the image of Christ. Because that was the whole idea of saving you. Listen to me. Saving you in God's plan of salvation. It was not just to get you into heaven, but it was to get heaven into you. It was to form you like Christ. Beloved, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. For now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see Him, we shall be like Him. God's plan in His salvation was to make you like Jesus. And so Peter said in, verse number, in chapter 1, if you've been born again, now you grow in those graces and you make your calling and election sure and you build it on that which is sure and that is the interpretation of this prophecy that we have. Peter said, listen, I was on the mountain and I heard the Father declare who Jesus was, but we have a more sure word than that. <laughs> the book you have in your hand is more sure than what Peter heard with his ears on the mountain. Isn't that a good thing? And he said, now you base all of this on the word of God. And then he said in chapter 2, why? Because false teachers are going to come. They're going to arise among you. And they're going to make merchandise of you. And they're going to be covetous people. And they're going to preach, they're going to preach a gospel of grace unto sin and to lasciviousness. In other words, that you don't, it, doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't matter what you do. God's grace will cover it all. And, 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 and God loves you just the way you are. Well, he does. But he loves me too much to leave me the way I am. But the false teachers will make merchandise of you and out of covetousness and out of their own fleshly desires. Men who cannot cease from sin. Men who are yet dogs and men who are yet hogs who have never had their nature changed and they're by nature doing what dogs do and hogs do. But they're merchandising the gospel. He said, you better beware of those false preachers. And you better know what's true and real because in the last days men will heap to themselves these teachers. Because in the last days, men will depart from the truth, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And let me tell you what we're facing today. We're not facing just cultural changes. We're facing demonic influence in the world. There is a spirit in this world of demonic, of demonic power. You listen to me. Satan is working and those principalities and those powers and those rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. They are manipulating and moving and blinding men's minds. Satan has blinded the minds of this world. Satan has deceived the whole world. They are believing a lie and following a lie. And Peter is saying here, that's going to be the spirit of the age in the end. So know what you are and know what you believe. He said in chapter 3, 
He said, because there are going to come scoffers. I'm stirring up your minds, he said in chapter 3. I'm stirring up your minds, that your minds would be filled, that you would be mindful of what was said by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. And what was said by us apostles, by the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the New Testament. In other words, get your mind full of the Scripture. Because there are going to be scoffers walking among you, mocking all the things that we believe, saying, where is the promise of His coming? It's been 2,000 years since He came. And they're going to mock you and they're going to make fun of and they're going to belittle the gospel that Jesus is coming again. Where is he? Peter pointed those scoffers out. He showed us who those scoffers were. And then he said in verse number eight, he said, let me change your perspective. He said, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. He was talking about the scoffers, and now he started talking to the saints, and he said to the saints, hey, let me change your perspective. The scoffers are looking at all of this through the natural thing. Hey, you know, since the beginning of time, nothing has changed. Where is God? And he said, let me change your perspective from the scoffers and the natural world, and let's go to the heavenly world, and let's go into the character of God, that God is not talking about time and temporal. He is talking about things in eternity. He is eternal. And time doesn't matter to God. Listen, if, if a day is a thousand years and a thousand years as, as a day, then guess what? Jesus left this earth two days ago. In, in, God's, in God's economy, listen, God works in time, but he's not limited by time. And let me tell you something right now. Uh, I'm in a hurry because my time is running out. I'm in a hurry because I live my life as a tale that is told, beginning and end. Once upon a time, Dean Miller was born, the end. I live my life as a tale that is told. I live my life if by, by, by reason of strength, 70 years. And if it's even further than that, then maybe 80. I might squeeze out 85 if I eat right and stay away from the jelly bellies. I don't know. I might be able to squeeze out 90. But can I tell you something? There is going to come a VN, but not with God. He is everlasting to everlasting. He is God. God is never in a hurry because I'm in a hurry because my time is running out, but his isn't. <laughs> God's, God's time is not running out. And then he says in verse number 9, 2 Peter 3, 9, he said, The Lord is not slack. That word slack means slow. God is not slow concerning his promises. Some men count slowness. God is not tardy. But his long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Mark it down. He said, I want you to see a divine perspective here that God, God is eternal and He is operating in His character. He's not in a hurry. He's not late. He's not running behind. He's not surprised. God's not in heaven tonight scratching His head wondering how all this world fell apart. God didn't wake up today and go, ooh, I didn't realize that was happening. Hey, listen, there's no panic in heaven. Only plans. God doesn't have to get an emergency council with the Trinity and say, hey, listen, we got a problem. He's firmly in control. 
So then why are you waiting? God, come get us. I'm long-suffering. Just like my wrath waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing so that preacher of righteousness could preach to that generation that there was an ark of safety in which they could flee to be saved from the wrath to come. I am waiting. I'm holding back my wrath at the dam of my mercy, allowing men to come to Christ. You say, is that really true? Look over at verse number 15. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Why is God being patient? He's being patient so that people can be saved. Listen to me tonight. If you're not saved, God is waiting on you. God is desirous that you would come to Christ. But notice Peter's urgency here. The day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night, verse 10, he says, as a thief in the night, into which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. When you read 2 Peter chapter 3, it reads like a science book. He's talking about the elements, the atoms and the, the, the electrons and neutrons all spinning around that nucleus. And listen, that, that negative and positive charge, and they're spinning around. I can't understand this, but scientists tell us that those, that those electrons are spinning around, those positive charge things are spinning around that nucleus billions of times every millionth of a second. Science tells us that in just one cup of air, there is enough nuclear energy to dry the oceans. In what you just breathed in and breathed out. And those things, science cannot even tell us why they stay together. And yet everything is made of that. The elements of this world. And we find that in Colossians chapter 1, by Him all things consist. He is holding it together by His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And listen to me, all things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. He is holding it all together. And the same Word that's holding it together will one day uncreate it. And with a great noise and a fervent heat, you talk about nuclear meltdown. Used to be just the preachers and the evangelists preaching doom. But let me tell you, today the sociologists are. The economists are. The politicians are. They know this thing's winding down. But I want to tell you something. It won't be Putin and it won't be Biden and it won't be any king of this earth that pushes the button. God will push the nuclear button. And when he pushes that button and all of this melts away with fervent heat and the heavens are gone and the earth is gone, we stand with him in nothingness once again and we hear him say, let there be light. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the former things are passed away and there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more death, there will be no more tears. There's going to be all those things are gone do you believe that? The day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. Somebody said, hey, pastor, what in the world, what is this world coming to? It's coming to Jesus. It has a rendezvous with destiny. Jesus is coming again. 
Now let me show you what this means to you and I. Look at, look at this. Peter asked the question back in 2 Peter chapter 3. Seeing therefore that these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought we to be? See, what Peter was constantly trying to do with these people who were suffering and these people who were under the false doctrines and the doctrines of demons and devils and the departure of the faith, he kept calling authentic Christianity back to the idea of what should we be doing facing the end? What should we be doing facing the end? Here it is. Chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. You say, well, pastor, he, he wrote this, this 2,000 years ago nearly. Yes. And was the end of all things really at hand then? Yes. You see, the Bible told us in the book of Amos that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that began what the Bible calls the last days. That's why John wrote in his epistles, Beloved, these are the last days. That's why I believe Paul, who wrote Hebrews, said that God hath spoken to us in these last times by his Son. These are the last days. The Lord is at hand. These are the last days. These are the last days. You say, Well, when is he coming? When he's coming. When he's coming. Well, what are we to be doing? Occupying till he comes. Knowing that this is the end and we better be busy about our father's business. We don't have time. We don't have time to sit around and, and be uh, aghast at the world. Listen, the world is deceived. The world is in darkness. The world is in sin. It's in bondage. And if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. It is time for God's people to know Christ is coming again and to be of good cheer. In the world you shall have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer. I've already overcome it. So what are we supposed to do? Well, first of all, we should be looking for it. The Bible says the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore, or because of that, sober. Now, when we think of sober today, we think of somebody who is off of drugs or alcohol. And that is a connotation of what sober means. But sober in the Bible just means to be in your right mind. Sober means to be in your right mind. To have a sober mind means that you are thinking right. And let me tell you something. We better have a sober mind and think right in a world that is thinking wrong. To be a sober-minded Christian means that we better be very serious about the coming of Christ and that he is coming. And we better let that coming of Christ put everything else into perspective. Hey, listen, I get up, I get up some days and I read the headlines and I think, wow, that's Matthew chapter 24. <laughs> that's Matthew 24. These are the signs of the second coming of Christ. But guess what? Before his second coming, there's an interruption called the rapture. <laughs> do, you know what, do you know what happens when you start seeing the love of many wax cold? You see, the end times before Christ's second coming is going to be marked by two great things. One is lovelessness. Men will not know how to love. They're without natural affection. Parents will murder their own babies. 
Politicians will be, will be trying to, to persuade the society that it's okay to kill a child after it's born. They're going to be, they're going to be loveless. They're going to be talking to little children about mutilating their bodies. Parents are going to walk away from each other and break the home to pursue their own happiness without natural affection, a day and age without love. That's what's going to be before Christ comes. And then it's going to be a day of lawlessness. It's going to be a day when there's anarchy in the street and lawlessness in the street and politicians standing up and saying, defund the police. No more law and order. Everybody do what's right in your own eyes. Now listen, these are all signs that precede the second coming of Christ. But remember, (laughs) when he comes the second time, he's not coming for us. We're coming with him. (laughs) We're coming with him. And so, so what happens when you start seeing all of these signs? Does it, listen, well, it's, let me just put it this way. What happens when you walk into Walmart or Hobby Lobby sometime in, in uh, August and you start seeing Christmas decorations? What does that tell you? What does that tell you? What's coming? When you walk in there, what do you know is coming? What's coming? No, Thanksgiving. See, all those signs point to Christmas, but there's a little thing in there that people just pass over. Well, let me tell you something. Every time, there are no signs that precede his rapture. He's going to come like a thief in the night. He's going to come in. He's going to get what's valuable, and he's taking it out. And we're going with him. And we're going to stand before him, and we're going to give an account of our stewardship and our servanthood. Listen, there are three great judgments awaiting this world. There is a judgment as a sinner. Every man will be judged as a sinner. Every man will be judged as a sinner. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All men will be judged as sinners. Let me tell you something. You'll either be judged by fire in hell, or you'll be judged at Calvary. God cannot pass your sin. Your sin will either be judged in hell or it will be pardoned at Calvary. Thank God my sin has already been judged and it was laid on Jesus and I have received pardon and I am forgiven tonight. So I have no more judgment as a sinner. I am no longer a sinner. He refers to me as a saint. Did you know I'm Saint Dean? I'm a saint in Jesus Christ tonight. Then there's going to be a judgment as a son. God judges his sons. He chastens those he loves and he judges his sons. He said, remember, he used a word that we deem today a a, a bad word, but it wasn't a bad word. It just means God said, you're not my children. I did not father you. Had I fathered you, I would have chastened you, but I didn't father you. You don't have my life in you. If you can get by with sin without the judgment of God or the chastening of God or the correction of God, you need to check up whether you are actually a son of God. Because everyone the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He scourgeth his his sons. But there's another judgment coming, and it's a judgment. It's a judgment of servants. It's where we stand before him after he comes and takes us out. And he's going to gather us all together. David wrote about this in Psalm 24. There are two great mountains in the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, we go to Mount Calvary. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
There's another great mountain in Psalm 24, the Mount Zion. The king is ascended into his holy hill. And that's why Psalm 23 is those who walk in the valley of the shadow of death. See, we're in a valley today between two hills, Calvary and Zion. But when he comes to take us out into Zion, in Psalm 24, he says the Lord is ascended into the holy hill. And it says two times in there, it says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. The King of glory shall come in. And they look back through those gates and they say, Who is the King of glory? That was a psalm when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up, remember? And they were bringing that up and they were saying, Lift up your heads, O you gates. And they looked out. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong in battle. Remember that? Well, see, Jesus, it was all about Jesus. He came the first time. And he came as a lamb and he came to die. Jesus was mocked and scourged and rejected. He was pierced and he was crucified. They took that broken body and put it in that tomb. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And up from that grave, he arose. And he ascended into heaven. And as Jesus approached that holy city, I can hear him say, Lift up your heads, O you gates. The King of glory shall come in. And they looked out. And they saw a man in a human body with scars and piercings. And they said, Who is this King of glory? And he held up those nail-scarred hands. And he said, The Lord strong in battle. And oh man, those gates swung open wide and they began to sing and they glorified. But wait a minute, the next time in Psalm 24 you read it, he comes back to those gates and he says, lift up your heads, O you gates. The King of glory shall come in. And they say, who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. What's that referring to? It's referring to when he comes back one day. He's going to come and get his bride and he's going to take us out. And he's going to stand before the gate with all of his saints and the prize that he had died for. And he'll say, lift up your heads, O your gates. The king of glory shall come in. And they'll look out and they'll see a man and they'll see a host of countless people in white garments behind him. And he's going to say, who is that king of glory? And he'll say, the Lord of hosts. And he's going to bring us in and march us right down that golden street on Glory Avenue, right before the very throne of God. He will ascend into that throne and he'll say, now gather around. Gather around. Who's going to ascend into the holy hill? He's going to tell us, he said, now folks, uh, I brought you up here because there's a big problem on earth. And I brought you out. And the reason I brought you out is because we're going back to take over. But I want to know who's going to be able to ascend into my holy hill. Those with clean hands and a pure heart. And he's going to say, now, show me your hands. And for many of us, it'll be a day where we are ashamed. We have nothing in our hands. And it's wood and it's hay and it's stubble. And under his trying eyes, the works that we gave ourselves to are burned. 
And then he will say to some, let me see your hands. And there's gold and silver and precious stones. And the Lord refines those. And he gives us crowns. He said, you're going to sit with me and rule with me. And we say, oh, no, Lord, <laughs> you're the king of glory. <laughs> and we crown him with many crowns. And then he'll gather us all together at his table. And Jesus will put on his wedding garments. And he's going to eat with us. And we're going to eat that bread and drink that cup anew in that kingdom. And we're going to see those nail-pierced hands serving us. What a day that's going to be. And we're going to rejoice together. And then we're going to hear the Lord scoot his chair back from that heavenly table. We're going to see him go to the closet of heaven. And he's going to take off his wedding garments. And he's going to grab his war garments. Vesture dipped in blood. And like a mighty general, he'll button it up. And he will call the steed from the stables of glory a great white horse. And with it, a multitude of others. And he will say to his servants, let's ride. And with a face shining as the brilliance of the sun and eyes of fire and a golden girdle around his paps and on his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we think, where is the king's sword? And it's in his mouth. And we're going to ride down the golden street and across the Milky Way. We're going to ride through heaven in those portals of glory. And you hear me, there's going to be a man, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. And they're standing on a great mountain. And he has looked to the north having conquered and looked to the south having conquered and looking to the west having conquered. And he's looking to the east having conquered. And he's declared himself to be the God of this wicked world. And that man of sin, the Antichrist, stands there in all of his glory. But he forgot to look up. And there are great hoof beats coming through the air. And listen to me, we are coming with our Lord and He is coming with a vengeance. Not the Lamb who came in a manger. Not the Lamb who died on the cross. But the Lion of Judah. The Lion of God with vengeance in His mouth. And with that sword, He will lay waste to His enemies. He will crush Satan's Superman. He will march through the armies of this world. And He will come to the eastern gates and they will swing wide and we will hear him as he comes up no longer on a lowly colt of an ass but he is coming on a great white horse of a king and he will march up the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem and he will take his rightful place on David's throne and with a rod of iron he will establish a kingdom of righteousness and in one word the deserts will begin to bloom and lions will lay down with lambs and children will lead adders and there will be peace on this earth and it will be restored into a world of glory and the whole earth will be filled with His glory. Everywhere you go, you'll hear the praise of Jesus. Everywhere you go, you'll see the glory of God everywhere. No more seeds of sin. No more dens of iniquity. It'll be a world under the righteous rule of Jesus Christ. Are you looking for that? Have you thought about that today? Do you ever wake up and think, this could be the day. 
I could hear the trumpet sound and I could meet the Lord in the air, ever to be with the Lord. He's coming for me. Are you looking for His coming? So many of us are out of our minds. Our minds are not right. We're over, we're cumbered with all the care of this world. We're looking at the condition of the world. We're seeing all the darkness and the sin. And we're discouraged. And we're, we're down. And we're afraid. And we're worried. And we're stressed. Listen to me. Listen to me. He's coming again. Look for his coming. And then he said, Watch unto prayer. Watch into prayer. What does that mean? Long for His coming. We've got to be longing for His coming. Don't you want to see Him today? Longing. You say, what does prayer have to do with it? Well, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. John prayed in Revelation twenty two twenty. 20, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're told in Psalm 122 and verse 6 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And the only way there's going to be peace is not by all of the treaties signed by these wicked kings of the earth. There's only going to be peace when the Prince of Peace. But then Peter said this. He said, I want you looking for it and I want you longing for it. But listen to this and I'm done. He said, I want you loving till he comes. He said in verse number eight, and above all things have Fervent charity among yourselves. Friend, you listen to me. If there's one thing that we need in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, we need a baptism of the love of God. We need to get over ourselves and we need to love. And I'm not talking about a love that embraces sin and a love that sweeps sin under the rug. I'm talking about a love that is a love that will confront it and will forgive it and will help win and restore people who have been broken by it. And ye which are spiritual, when a man is overtaken in a fault, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself. Let thou also be tempted. Listen to me. Listen to me. I don't want to be that guy where one day people hear he fell into sin and somebody says, yeah I saw that coming well I saw that coming well aren't you a good prophet if you saw it coming why didn't you call me why don't you say in love I want to edify you I want to encourage you I want to provoke you to love and to good works forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is but, but, but edify one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching provoking one another unto love and unto good works. Love. I'm talking about charity, fervent charity. I'm talking about boiling over charity. I'm talking about something that stretches you. I'm talking about something that causes you to sacrifice for others. A love that gives, a love that goes to Calvary, a love that would lay down its own life for someone else. That's how Jesus taught us to love. Say, well, you don't know what they did to me. Well, let me tell you something. Does Jesus love you? What did you do to him? Because God commendeth. What a great word. They've tried to re-translate it as demonstrated, but that's, that's too cheap. The true word commendeth, it means to showcase. When I was going to buy an engagement ring for my wife, the jeweler took out a black velvet mat and he rolled it out. And he put these diamonds on it. 
so I could see their cut and their clarity. I could see, I could see the, the carrot, but he covered up so I didn't see the cost. <laughs> you know, that's the four C's of diamonds. And while I was looking at that, he laid that on that blackness. And listen, it was the contrast of the blackness that made the beauty of the diamond. And the verse says, but God did that in this way. He did that with his love. In that while you were sinning, he was dying. And in that, in that kind of love, the world knows that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. When you love one another. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. What is a mark of a disciple? They are people who love. And they love fervently. Love is the greatest virtue. There remaineth Three, hope, faith, charity. The greatest of these is it's the greatest virtue. Love is the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the greatest virtue. Love is the greatest commandment. Love is the greatest testimony. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Love is the, is the greatest motivation. For the love of Christ constraineth me. The church of Ephesus, Paul wrote to them and said, you are a church that is risen with Christ. You're a church risen and alive, quickened. Forty years later, John wrote to them and said, you're a church that's fallen. Oh, don't get me wrong. I know your labor. You work hard. You have a lot of ministry. In fact, you've got your doctrine straight. You don't even tolerate false doctrine in the church. You don't tolerate the evildoers. You've got strict standards. You walk in those standards. You dress right, look right, act right, talk right. You've got it all together. But I've got something against you. You lost your first love. Peter said it's charity above all things. What should, we, what should we be doing in this day? We should be loving each other. We should be loving each other with fervent charity. Oh, listen to me. Jesus is coming again. And the end of all things is at hand. Let's look for it. Let's long for it. Let's love till he gets here. And then let me just say this. Let's labor for it. You say, how do you labor for it? How do you labor for it? Peter said in 2 Peter that we can hastening under the coming of the Lord. How do we hasten that? I'll tell you, I'll tell you how we do it. By praying, by Lord, thy kingdom come, and then by winning souls to Jesus Christ. By winning souls to Christ. Have you talked to somebody about the gospel today? Have you been winning people to Christ? Have you been sharing the gospel with coworkers? Have you been telling others about what Jesus did for you? Have you been sharing the gospel with love and power and compassion? Are you telling others about Christ? 
Why is he waiting? Why won't he come get us? The long-suffering of God is salvation. Let's be winning souls to Christ. You're thinking about somebody right now that's lost, that you know. Friend, let me tell you something. You better be praying for them. And you better do everything you can to reach them for Christ. God, forgive us that our prayer meetings in our Baptist churches are more praying to keep saints out of heaven. So-and-so sick, so-and-so this, and we need to pray for them, and we need to bear their burdens, and we need to be stretched, and we need to serve them and love them, and we need to pray for them. But friend, listen, if our prayer time is only about those who are sick and on their way out, and we never pray about the lost who've never found their way in, we're praying to keep saints out of heaven, and we never pray to keep sinners out of hell. There's something wrong with our prayer. My mother, my mother died this last year. We were all standing at her bedside when my mom made the decision to have them take her off of the oxygen that was keeping her alive. There was nothing wrong with her brain. There was nothing wrong with her kidneys, her heart, everything. She was a picture of health. Just her lungs were fibrosing and she couldn't breathe. She was in the ICU for five days, and she had been able to spend every day with my dad, her husband of 63 years, and one of her kids each day. And on the last day of my mom's life, <clears throat> we had made a pact as children that we would, whenever we were in the room and the doctor came in the room, to voice record the doctor's conversation so that we all knew what was going on. I've got about six 12-minute recordings of my mom telling people about how the doctor came in and she said, now just tell me straight. And he said, well, you're not going home. She said, oh, no, I'm going home. He said, no, no, you don't understand. You're not going home. She said, no, you don't understand. I am going home. And I want you to go with me. He said, why? I can't go with you. She said, oh, you can. Let me tell you how. And my mom preached the gospel to that man for about 12 minutes. We played that at her funeral. My mom called me that Saturday morning. My dad and my oldest brother were driving up to the hospital to see her. My mom called me that morning, and she said, has your dad left yet? I said, he's on his way up, Mama. She said, okay, son, now listen. I've been talking with the Lord, and I'm ready to go home. And I said, well, Mom, we, we don't want you to go. She said, I know, son. She said, I know. You've been praying for me to get better. She said, but Jesus has been praying that I would be where he is. And he always gets his prayers answered. <laughs> so she said. And she said, I've, I'm ready to go. She said, now... I want you to promise me that you're going to take care of your dad. I said, Mom, you know we will. She said, now, when your dad gets here, i got to talk to him because I need his permission. But I'm ready to go. I prayed with my mom that morning on the phone. I didn't want to pray that prayer. But I prayed... Lord, my mom is in a strait between two. To stay here and be with us. Or to depart and to be with Christ.
which is far better. And Lord, I know that if mama dies today, it is gain. My dad got up there and my dad talked to my mom. He finally conceded and gave permission. They called all of us up there and I was standing next to my mom's bed and she was talking to all of us and just having a sweet time. We, she was the only one in the room not crying. She was telling stories and she was talking to us. And I said, Mama, I don't want you to go. And she said, I know, son. But you're coming too. I said, I know. She finally said to my oldest brother, okay, go get the doctor. It's time. I grabbed a hold of her hand. I'm the baby of the family, you know. I grabbed a hold of her hand. I said, Mama, are you sure? She said, son, this is the final enemy. And he's already been defeated. I'm sure. They came in and began to turn all those things off. The doctor told us, he said, now your mom and I have already talked about this. This is not an easy way to see somebody die. And my mom said, oh, I told you before, it's going to be fine. She said, remember what I told you about Jesus? He already took the sting of death. My mom kind of drifted off to sleep. They were telling us that she was going to be gasping and panicking and trying to get air, and she never did. For about an hour, she just slowly breathed, and then she opened her eyes, she saw my dad, and she said, I love you, honey. And about 15 minutes later, she took her last breath, and she went to be with the Lord. Now, let me tell you something. We stood around that bed, and we all wept. And all I could think in my mind was my mother in that radiant, beautiful glory that she would, <laughs> how beautiful heaven must be. And we just started singing as a family. I heard of a place that's called heaven. How beautiful heaven must be. We sang that as a family. My dad opened up the Bible and he read from Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. He read from my mom's Bible where the Lord said, Write, blessed are the dead which die from henceforth. For they do cease from their labors and their works do follow them. My dad closed that Bible and he began to pray. When we opened our eyes, the floor of nurses and doctors were in our room with tears in their eyes, holding gospel tracts in their hand that my mom had given them. And we spent the next hour or so just sharing the gospel and leading doctors and nurses to Christ. <laughs> because they said, we've never seen anybody die like that. Now, I want to tell you something. I got home that night, and I went down, and I met my dad downstairs, and I prayed with him, and I hugged him, and I said, now, Dad, I got to talk to you. He said, what? I said, I'm a little shook up, because I don't know that I got what Mama had. 
He said, you will. You will. Let me tell you something. She was laboring for his coming. We were been trying to pray to keep her out of heaven. Let me tell you something. She's been with the Lord. <laughs> Absent from the body is present with the Lord. And there's coming a day, Brother Murphy, there's coming a day, Brother Murphy, I'm going to walk into heaven. I'm going to see my mama. <laughs> and I'm going to say, Mama. And she'll say, Son, when did you get here? And I'll say, I just got here today. She said, So did I. <laughs> She's never spent a day away. It's never been a night there. Listen, she's been in the light of God's glory. To to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Listen to me, church. He's coming again. Lift up your heads. Redemption draws nigh. Father, I pray you'll speak to every heart. Encourage your people. I pray tonight that we would be people looking and longing and loving in these last days. God, may we make things right. May we have a passion to preach Christ and to win the lost. Lord, may we hear the message and in the light of your coming, may we forgive those who've done us wrong. May we be able to honestly pray tonight, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. May we find sweet peace tonight in the light of your coming. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Boy, Pastor Miller really hit the nail on the head. Um, You know, it's so easy in the Christian life to get caught up in culture in current events, in in political problems, and all the different things that we allow ourselves to get caught up in. Uh, And we really have to stay focused on the Christian walk, on renewing our passions in in relation to Christ, in relation to what he's done for us. And he's given us uh, four great ways to stay focused on Christ uh, and to really push forward in the Christian walk, uh, just like Paul tells us to when he said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Well, I hope that was a blessing to you. Thanks for tuning in. God bless you.